Turn me down. Turn them off. Turn them down. Uh, yeah, one thing at a time here. Test one, two. Is that how's that? It sounds a little low. Yeah, a little higher, Alan. Oh, it's tinny. What's going on? Who knows, man? It's our sound system is demonic. Uh, the last time this happened, what I did, Raj, was just turn off the uh, soundboard. It's, yeah, I, it's, uh, there's some. Test one, two, test one, two. Yeah, uh, it's a little better, but uh, let's a uh, little lower. <laughs> it's crazy. The sound... And it, all the equipment is brand new, too. Well, except for the soundboard. The soundboard's fine. Uh, that's better. Now, a little more uh, gain, whatever it's called. There. There we go. Test. Is that good? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah, that that's all right. We can go with that for now. It's still cracking up a little bit. But I'm a crack up anyway, right? <laughs> Test one, two, yeah, if I go into the, whatever, let's leave it. Uh, good morning. Uh, I, can't, I can't live with that. Uh, just uh, probably turn it down a little and then I'll talk louder, I don't know. Um, yeah, because it's, it's cracking up up here, which is weird. Uh, one, two, three, can, now, can you hear that? Yeah. All right, we'll go with that and I'll just be loud if I need to be. Yeah, see the octogenarians in the back can't hear me. <laughs> test one, two, test one, two, test one, two, uh, test one, two, test one, two, three, four. You think, I, I'm, I'm getting some cracky, cracky stuff. Yeah, it sounds like the internet sound is fine. Okay, let's leave it there. Just a little lower, Alan, just a little, just a tad off the top, just, yeah. Yeah, because you know you can't get a nap in while uh, <laughs> while while it's this loud, you know. Oh, All right, here we go. What time are we at? I'm, I've got like the longest message today too that I need to get through. So maybe that's God's way of saying slow down. Um, first and foremost, I saw uh, a article about a group of leftist protesters who tried to stop an event at the University of Houston in which a conservative student group was uh, screening a movie. This movie, uh, it's a movie that's been put out by Matt Walsh, if you know this guy, he's a conservative commentator, he's a Christian guy. Uh, and it's a movie about gender, you know, that boys are boys and girls are girls. Yeah, shocking, yeah. Uh, and the uh, protesters were trying to stop the this whole thing at the student and some student, uh, it was a conservative student group at the University of Houston. So they failed to stop the event, thanks in large part to the Houston Police Department, which we have some uh, some dear friends and loved ones who are members of that that department. And uh, <clears throat> they were, and so the video showed after after things had started going, 
um, a barrier separated the conservative side from the protesting side. So on, they're about 20 feet apart, maybe 15 feet apart. There's a barrier on both. And on this side are the protesters, these Antifa dudes. And on this side are uh, this conservative group, a lot of them Christians. And the Christians were praying for the protesters. So they started praying out loud for the protesters. On the other side, the protesters were holding up umbrellas in an attempt to, quote-unquote, block the prayers. <laughs> now, I'm not making this up. I saw the video. They had the umbrellas out. Uh, kind of like, remember in the, in the Batman, the penguin had opened his umbrella and shoot stuff? That's where they had it. They had it out, and they were hiding behind the umbrellas. And my, my heart broke, because they don't understand the doctrine of prayer at all. All right, so pray for them. Progressive anarchists need the doctrine of prayer. All right, on a second note, I thought that was hilarious. I, I watched, they were actually cowering behind the umbrellas. It was just a riot. Uh, anyway, um, as you know, a couple of weeks ago, Chris and I went to Washington, D.C. Uh, we were uh, invited and flown there. It was wonderful. The McCabe family, uh, the patriarch of that family is Tom McCabe, who's been here a couple of times, uh, listens to us, and a great man of God. And we had a wonderful time. We, uh, we spent the week in Washington, and on Friday we, we did Joey McCabe's wedding, Joe, uh, Tom's son. And so I got to officiate the wedding, which was an honor. It was wonderful. And I shared a little bit about it before. But what I had forgotten was that if you, and I knew a little bit about this about Joey. Joey is uh, a fashion plate, kind of, when he dresses, sometimes when he dresses. And at the wedding, he had a white tux. You know, it looked very classy, uh, very normal. But his shoes were not normal. His shoes were these kind of colorful, crazy, but really slick-looking shoes. And I remember looking at them. And then Tom, uh, just a couple days ago, sent me this picture with the, the, in the subject line. The, it, the email said, oh, Joey, those shoes. <laughs> and there it is. So I wanted, this picture just cracked me up. So the bride is walking down the aisle, uh, practically, and I'm standing there, you know, waiting, and I'm staring at his shoes, <laughs> and somebody caught me looking down, and I kind of blew it up there so you could see the shoes, and uh, yeah, so very professional at what I do, you know, like, what in the world is that? So anyway... Right? That's our good man, Joe. Like, look how good he looked, right? He, yeah, he got a haircut and everything. And that's uh, next to him is Aaron. Aaron's been here a bunch of times. And they just had a baby and bought a, a new house in Dallas, Texas. He's the CEO of the Freedom Foundation, the big, tall British guy standing right next to him, uh, who's a member of our, our church. So, and now in Dallas. All right. So, things are looking up. Uh, let's begin with prayer. Let's uh, thank God for our time together as his family, coming together as his brothers and sisters, uh, us as brothers and sisters, and 
God's children, to worship Him, to learn His Word, to grow in grace and knowledge so that uh, we can really deeper understand this wonderful life that He has given us. So with humility and reverence, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for the opportunity to be together and before you to have the confidence to know that you have made us your children through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you for him and his incredible sacrifice in our behalf, without which we would have nothing. But with him we have everything. We have been given what you have uh, destined us to have since before the foundation of the world, and it is eternal life. We thank you, Father, for all that you do and all that you have done through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would inspire us this morning, open up our hearts to your word, and guide us in our worship of you with our hearts singing to you. And um, even while we're learning your word, Father, to have the, the joy and the rejoicing of knowing the truth. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, all rise, please.
All right, so let's turn to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Uh, We're going to uh, look at, uh, Alan, just a a little bit higher for me. If it cracks a little, that's perfect. That's perfect right there. Thank you. We appreciate you guys. That sound system, (laughs) where most of the time it behaves itself, but it's crazy. Uh, Anyway, um, we've we've looked at quite a bit of things concerning prayer so far, and so our next venture is to look at prayer uh, in the Book of Psalms. And to to do that. Uh, we have to pause before we head into the thick of the Psalms, of which there's 150 of them. Uh, and so it's extensive. Uh, the Psalms is God's prayer book, God's song book. And in the Psalms, many of them, uh, they're both. They're prayers and songs. Of course, we can sing to God with joy. Technically, it's prayer. Uh, so <clears throat> what? Um, before we... Before we really understand and can have the Psalms be, it's true of all doctrine, yet the book of Psalms has everything. Right? It has everything in it. It's, it's huge. And from uh, God's redemption to man's you know, fall, man's, man's redemption, man's salvation, the future, the past, everything. It's just everything. Uh, <clears throat> We, before we can plant these things in our heart, our heart has to be of a certain type. So, for instance, what you would know is an unbeliever can read through the book of Psalms and, and gain something from it. But is he really going to be able to understand the heart of God or, or really gain within himself or herself you know, what the, the truth of the Psalms? It will not be able to. But a believer who doesn't have the right heart... Meaning, it would it really uh, apply to our conscience, the, the, the correct love, the correct, uh, we talked a lot about this on Thursday, the, you know, to love what you should love and not have things that should be like your fourth love or fifth love be at the top. You know, like loving yourself more than loving God. So this, Paul would write this in Second Timothy, First Timothy 3, that men would be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And so, uh, Psalm 1 and 2 are an introduction to the entire collection of, of all 150. Psalm 1 and 2 are not songs. They're not prayers. Psalm 1 and 2 are an intro. Uh, at the outset of the book, we have one psalm, first psalm, focusing on the righteousness of us. Focusing on the way of righteousness. In Psalm 2... We have the focus of the victory of the Lord's anointed king. All right, so Psalm 1 is about righteousness. And Psalm 2 is about the victory of the Lord's anointed king. And I wondered to myself, I said, we, this seems out of order, doesn't it? Shouldn't you have the, the victory of the king first and then our righteousness second? But then I thought to myself, and this may be wrong, <laughs> but... But I'm bold enough to say it. No, I'm, I'm just, I would say this is my opinion. It's just a, a thought that came to me is that the Psalms are written for us so that we will be righteous 
and use prayer, our, our conversation with God throughout our lives, to be overcomers, uh, to, to communicate so that with the author of salvation and the author of the Word of God so that we're in constant communication and a constant conversation about what it is that we have to do and what it is we have to think and how we have to be focused and to keep our priorities straight on a day-by-day basis, of which all of us know can be upside-downed, that's not a word, can be, you know, can be turned over, and we can lose our focus very quickly and very easily. Uh, and so we have the Lord's anointed king, his king over all the nations, over all the universe in Psalm 2. And as we'll find out, that this gives us confidence. You know, because it's going to be difficult at times to live righteous in a world that is not, in a body that doesn't want to do it, and uh, amongst people who will attack us and mock us and tell us false things and try and make our spiritual lives ineffective. The kingdom of darkness is going to try and make your spiritual life ineffective in any way that they can. And to know that our king is victorious, that he is, that this is written a thousand years, we don't know, this isn't David's psalm, so roughly somewhere around there, hundreds of years, we'll say, before the birth of Christ. And it's very clear that the Father says, the Lord says, my son is going to sit on the throne of Zion and be ruler of all nations. And you can say anything you want against that, but it doesn't matter to me, because this is going to happen. And so when we're in that conundrum, in the conflict that exists in this world, and within our own hearts, that, you know, should I do right, should I do wrong, should I, should I conform to the world, there's a lot of pressure for me to conform. There's a lot of pressure from my flesh to do the thing that I shouldn't do, then, or, or to not do the thing that I should do, how do I get this confidence and this, this propulsion, this motivation to keep saying no to the wrong thing? And my king, who turns out in the church age, is my husband, my Lord, my Master, my friend, the victorious one, sits at the right hand of God until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, which they will, and I am a member of that kingdom. And therefore, you know, this is a lot of things. I have an, uh, a responsibility. I have, uh, I'm obligated to this. But also, you know, how how wonderful to know that when I do His will, it will always work out right. And the promise in Psalm 1, in everything I do, everything I do, I will prosper. Now, of course, our prosperity gospel folks out there, and there are many of them, I don't know how many, in their big churches, they, they take that to mean that all earthly Prosperity will be yours. You really think that God thinks prosperity is earthly prosperity. Like his prosperity is earthly prosperity. Come on, you, you missed something there. 
if you think that's true. God's prosperity is not the material. The most prosperous man alive is the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he have of any value? The only thing he had was an inner garment that was seamless that some master craftsman up in Galilee had made for him, or craftswoman. And that was the only thing that the soldiers didn't destroy. They cast lots for it because it was valuable. It's the only thing he had. But what did he really have of value? The Father's will, this life, the life that he died for to give to us. When the entire book of Psalms was finally edited, and it had to be edited. I mean, Psalms are being written and they're being added to the collection over hundreds of years. And, uh, you know, it's probably somewhere around the, the captivity and afterwards. We know some of the Psalms have been written after the captivity that somebody, somebody we don't know, had edited and put them in the order that they're in. They're in five books. They're separated into five books. We have it as one whole book. Uh, all of these psalms. And they put these two at the front. And say, well, well, how do I know that's a divine thing? That God wanted them put at the front. Because they're in your Bible. God will inspire anybody. And they fit. They fit there perfectly. So look at Psalm 1. We're going to read through both of them. They're pretty short. So Psalm 1 has, as you notice it, it's beautifully ordered, as the Psalms are. This is poetry. Poetry has its own you know, way of, you have to look at it as poetry. It's not the same as studying a narrative or an epistle. It has two stanzas of three verses each. So the first stanza, How blessed is the man! who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, we're going to look at these all week. I, I decided there's too much here, way too much to fit. There's probably too much to fit in a week, but over about four classes, three classes maybe, we're going to look at the details a little bit more. But here we're going to overview here this morning. You notice that you have three types of people here in verse 1. The wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. So, and then for us, there's three things not to do. To walk, to stand, and to sit. And how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked here means, really the Hebrew word means ungodly. And here, he would be talking about those who have rejected God, rejected his covenant. So we're in Old Testament times, so they've rejected the covenant, therefore they've rejected the redemption of the Father. In our age, they've rejected the redemption of the Father through Jesus Christ, and therefore they are ungodly and sinners. And the last one is they scoff, they make fun of, they mock. What did they do around the cross of Christ? They mocked him. <clears throat> so, how blessed is the man? And then in verse 2, But, instead of the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers, his delight is in the law of the Lord. It means it makes him happy. Yet, the word law there in the Hebrew is Torah. But he would be using it here, not just meaning the first five books, the books of Moses, 
but the whole Scripture. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law He meditates day and night. And He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever He does, He prospers. And again, that's God's prosperity. Meaning if I'm poor, I'm sick, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm the poor man outside of the rich man, poor Lazarus, right, that Jesus tells about in Luke 16, that the dogs were coming to lick his sores. If I'm that guy, I can be prosperous in all that I do because I do it as unto him. Now, there's many things. At first, we, we will, later on, we'll look at this tree. There's three things about the tree. It's sturdy, it has character, and it is a blessing. A blessing to others and a blessing to himself. Sturdy, its roots go into the ground. Why is it sturdy? The streams represent the law of the Lord in which the tree delights. So, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter how hard it gets, no matter what things happen to us, no matter what the wicked or the scoffers do to us, we always have the law of the Lord to feed upon, to drink of. Now, verse 4, 5, and 6 is a great contrast. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff. (laughs) I had to practice this. I keep saying, yeah, I want to say chafe. It's not chafe, it's chaff. I know, now I know. That's like me with Calvary and Cavalry. I, I, can't, I can't get them straight. In my book, Sermon on the Mount, there's eight mentions of the word Calvary, and four of them are Cavalry. Yeah, it made it past the editors, but we, we edited that book like five times and missed it every time. Somebody even pointed it out to me, and I was like, oh, well, yeah, what do you want me to do? Uh, so, anyway, the wicked are not so, they're like chaff which the wind drives away. Notice the contrast to the sturdy tree. What is chaff? It is the worthless part of the grain that was smashed and separated, and then they would winnow it, they'd throw it up in the air, and it just takes, you wouldn't want a heavy wind because your grain would go too. On these threshing floors that they would have in high places, a gentle breeze would just blow it away, and you separate the wheat from the chaff. And... uh, you know, that's what they are, worthless and nothing. And will they be separated from the, the, the wheat? The wheat are the believers, and they will be at the last judgment, which he mentions here. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Simple, a great contrast. So who's going to really glean and benefit from the book of Psalms? Well, it certainly ain't the wicked. And, you know, if we are, as believers, if we are believers, who are really going to benefit from the words of the Psalms? It's those who are the tree, that bear fruit, the fruit here in, in our uh, in, in our age, we cannot disassociate it from the fruit of the Spirit. Right? This fruit, which we'll see, we're going to see that, that Peter and all his companions are going to be filled with the Spirit, and then they're going to quote this, well, they're going to quote Psalm 2. 
right there in the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 4. They're going to quote this. Because now that this is established, who are the righteous and who are the wicked and how are the righteous blessed? They're blessed because they don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. They don't stand in the... I messed it up already. They don't stand in the path of sinners. They don't sit in the seat of scoffers. They delight in the law of the Lord. And now, what well, we got a bit to go here. As long as there is so much evil in the world and society is what it is, godlessness, or sorry, godliness, must be largely viewed as negative. As long as there is so much evil in the world and society is what it is, godliness, or the blessed godly, must be largely viewed as a negative thing. And it is. And we're shocked. we get shocked by it. But look, who has decreed this world? Is it a shock to God that the sinners became what they were? Look, he's, even, he's writing about it here. But um, from the beginning, of course, God knew. Jesus Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. And therefore, God knew this. Now, he has allowed it, but it is of his decree. God has decreed. It's hard for it's impossible for us to understand, but yet He has made it so that there would be this conflict between the first stanza and the second. The blessed who love the law of the Lord and those who would persecute them, and this would be throughout all history. And it creates quite the conflict because to stand firm with the truth. Boy, you've got to be committed, don't you? And what I mean by that is it's nothing of works. It's faith. Your faith has to really be firm in this. You believe that this is very real and that your Father is very real. And the Lord, you know, that last song we sing, I've always not liked that song because I think it's too slow, but the words of it, and this time when I sung it, I was like, I kind of appreciated the slowness of it because it, you know, it just made me focus on every every line. But you know, what did he do, our Lord? Was that a picnic for him? Was it like joyful? Was it? I mean, we can't we can't possibly understand. But what we can understand is that the sacrifice that he gave was immense. immense. There's no word for it to describe it. And that was for what? To hand us this life, this eternal life, which is to be lived now, and to really live it now. And look, if you really want to live it when it's not easy, you know, if we all just were zipped to heaven the moment we believed in Christ and everybody was just, you know, new Jerusalem, righteous place, new heaven, new earth, you're like sure, you know this is easy. Christian life is easy, you know, but at the start, at our infancy, which is here on earth, it's not easy. <clears throat> the people of God are persecuted. You know, in every nation through after the Jews were dispersed, even the unbelieving Jew were persecuted. Right, anti-Semitism. They weren't just weren't just the converted Christian Jews that were persecuted. Jews everywhere have been persecuted, and why is that? Because they're different, and they're prosperous. And you know why they're prosperous? 
is because for the most part, they stick to the law, the moral law. And so they learn to read early, they study hard, they stick to morality, not all of them, but for a great deal. And this causes great prosperity in them. And they're different. They don't, they don't behave like others. They have different customs, different culture, different food. They, you know, they stuck together and they were persecuted for this. People don't like different. And the Christians in the early church in the Roman Empire were persecuted. Although they, they didn't prosper either. They were poor and they were persecuted because they were different. And so McLaren in his book of Psalms writes this. And I borrow... And I read this. I immediately thought of the, the logo that the show The Chosen uses. And if you read, this, if you read the show, if you watch the show, uh, as, they're, as this thing is spinning around, the dead fish become green and they turn around and swim against the current. And that's their, you know, their depiction of believers. Uh, as McLaren says here, he writes a great commentary on, uh, he writes, uh, on the entire book of Psalms. Live fish swim against the stream, dead ones go with it. That's such a great statement. Live fish swim against the stream, the dead ones go with it. And Christians are pressured to just go with the flow, right? Behave like the world. Come on, it's easier, isn't it? Well, sure it is. So is swimming with the current. But against the current is harder. In the, distractions, <clears throat> in the distractions and activities of the busy day, the law in which we delight and love will be with us. Right? If you delight in the law of God, which means, and this takes years for you to accumulate it, but if you love it, you accumulate it as you're going through the activities of a busy day that are full of distractions, <clears throat> the law will be with you. I mean, what I mean by law is all the scripture. It will illumine your path and it will sharpen you in your action. In hours of rest. See, he says here in Psalm 1 that we delight in it and meditate. We're going to see this word because it's used again in verse 2. I mean in Psalm 2. Meditate on it day and night. In our hours of rest, we are given solace, even though we're weary. It renews our strength, and certainly every morning. The habit of patient, protracted meditation on the revelations of God, actually brooding on the revelation of God, uh, needs in all of us to be cultivated. We, we looked at, um, this past week, the prayer practice of both Augustine and Luther, Martin Luther. And I appreciated Luther's most of all because he he would always meditate on a verse before he started praying. And that was his way of getting his mind set. You know, getting the distractions out. Slowing everything down. And because, and this happens with Christians, unfortunately, because we're so fast and superficial, there's no depth to our Christianity. It's superficial, like when we're going through this thing, to this thing, to this thing, to this thing, when do you stop? With all, say, if we finish that doctrine, next one, finish that book, next one, finish that doctrine, next one. And I even feel the pressure to do that. But then God, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he does hardly anything, but 
He does it. I know that He does. And He slows me down. Think about what you're reading. Think about these words. Right? Think about why is Psalm... You can meditate on Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And and as... You know, it doesn't take that long either. It's not like you need to set aside five hours. You can in ten minutes meditate with God on a verse. It's not really prayer, but it's also not Bible study. It's somewhere in the middle in which we're considering and mulling over what does this truth really mean? And what does it mean to me? And, you know, what does it mean in my relationship with God? This pays great dividends. But because you have a depth of doctrine in your soul instead of superficial, as you're going through the days when you're tired at night, when you wake up in the morning, it's there. It's there. You've cultivated it. But as, this also comes from McLaren, men live meanly, and that doesn't mean that they're angry. He means sparsely. Men live meanly because they live so fast and without depth. And I, I, as I was reading, and I'm a few days behind in the Bible reading yet again, every time I get caught up, you know, it, but it's fish against the current. <laughs> I fall back a few days, but I'm almost on it. But we're just about finishing Psalm 119, and, and as I read this, I think it was yesterday. Uh, Psalm 119, 148, my eyes anticipate the night watches. That's the, the early morning hours. The night watch, there were four watches, depending on if you were a Roman or what, but th- three or four. Uh, <clears throat> and throughout the middle of the night, my eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Right? What's the psalmist saying here? I long for that quiet time. Nobody's yapping at me. There's no more things to do. The details of life are done. Everybody's gone to sleep or close to it. Everybody is quieted down. And now I can meditate on your word. But how many people will look forward to the night watches for other reasons? You know, to get, you know, to feed an addiction or... And, of course, as we know, we've talked about this as many, many types. When the disciples left Jesus at the well, the Samaritan woman in John 4, he was wearied from the journey. It's exactly what it says. He was tired. And they left to go get food in the village, and they left Jesus alone at the well. And the Samaritan woman came, and he talked to her, John 4, fantastic. He told her about living water. She became a believer. He told her about her five husbands. She became a believer, and she became his first real evangelist. Off into the towns of Samaria, she went to tell everybody about Jesus, and the town came, all came to see him. But when the disciples came back, they found Jesus refreshed. And they said this. They said that, has, have you eaten, Lord? You know, has anybody... And the Lord said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And then they said, has anybody gotten him food? These guys were always literal with Jesus. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. His encounter with the Samaritan woman took a weary Lord 
to a refreshed Lord. Why is that? I say, well, this is the Son of God. How could he be weary? This is him and his humanity. He's truly human. That's the kenosis doctrine. He left aside the expression of his deity. Uh, <clears throat> and it's because he did the will of God. It was the word of God. It was the conversion of this woman that gave him. And, and so that is the power of the word. <clears throat> the wicked in this psalm are uh, in the soil of self-will, while the good tree is in the soil that delights in God's law. Again, in verse 3, and whatever he does, he prospers. So the wicked are in the, and I tie this to the parable of the sower. You know, when do the, what, which, which seed is the one that produces bountifully, while the others are choked with various things like the worries of the world and the uh, um, temptation of riches. And the one that is put, what he says is in the good soil. And the good soil here would be represented in the, this first stanza. The blessed know that all that they need, uh, <clears throat> sorry, the blessed know that all that meet them will serve the will of their sovereign king. So, and, and this gets us to Psalm 2, and that's why Psalm 2 here quickly follows. The, the blessed know that, look, here came the adversity, here comes the wicked who are scoffing at me. Why are they here? Why is this here? Why is this problem here? Because my sovereign king has allowed it to be here. Nothing is outside of his sovereignty. Right? The, the, my path is set. My steps are numbered. The Lord knows and has allowed. He has allowed everything that's going to happen in my life. There is nothing that happens to me that is outside the sovereignty of God. And so in part of the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread... Are you satisfied with what the Lord has given you right now? Or do you think there needs to be more or less? Are we satisfied with exactly the people, the type of people, the circumstances and situations, the type of circumstances and situations that are in our life right now? Are we content? And how would we find contentment? And say, well, I'm not content because I would rather things be different. Of course, you would rather them to be different. But who's the one who truly is in control of your very life? And that is the sovereign king. And is he for you or against you? you know, and he, I know he's for me. And so that's why he prospers in everything he does. In verse 3, he knows Things happen that are of tribulation comes upon me. Uh, this is the sovereign will of God. So they delight in it. Uh, <clears throat> they know it is the will of God to delight. It, uh, the will of God is delight. And that, can, that they can never really be hurt by evil. They can be influenced by evil. Uh, they can be attacked by evil. But they can never really be hurt by it. Jesus is going to tell us in reference to this passage. He's going to teach us according to Psalm 1 and 2. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can not only kill the body, but cast the soul into hell. Fear him. Don't fear those who can kill the body. 
The path of the ungodly always seems to start out okay. We're going to spend a little time on this this week. It's, it's, uh, I find it delightful and also depressing at the same time is to study the life of the ungodly. Um, you know, and it, it explains a lot. You know, why do people do what they do? We, should, we read the news and shake our heads. We hear about things and we're like, why, what, how is that possible? And the path of the ungodly always seems to start out okay. But like some paths in the forest that are not kept or are not walked, they narrow and they come to an end and it's nothing there. As, uh, as C.S. Lewis describes it as a machine, a broken machine that starts out okay, but then it putters and then it breaks and then it breaks down. And, you know, why is that? Because there's something wrong. Now, the heart of man needs to be fed on his creator. And if that's not there, everything goes wrong. Uh, it goes wrong in life, as the Lord tells us here, but also there is a judgment, and we must remember that. Because, whoever, you know, why would we love our enemies and pray for them? Because we will want nobody to face this judgment that is stated of here. I mean, the awfulness of not being able to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to stand in the judgment. I just, I can't imagine it. I don't want to, actually. So, moving to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm, focusing on the coronation of the Davidic king in the holy city of Zion. This is definitely a Davidic king. The question would be, in Psalm 2, does it refer to any Davidic king? Does it refer to Solomon or Rehoboam? And, and we know, of course, that it wouldn't because neither of those gentlemen or actually most who came from the loins of David did anything good. But, <clears throat> of course, we'll, we'll discover here that this is the great king of David, the greatest son of David, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. At the, thus, at the outset of the book, we have one psalm focusing on the ways of righteousness, Psalm 1. I mean the book, I mean uh, the book of Psalms. And another psalm focusing on the victory of the Lord's anointed king over the nations. When the entire book of Psalms is finally edited, these are put at the front, and we see that the righteousness of man and the victory of the king are at hand here. And so we have the volition, the choice, and the victory and redemption of mankind and the victory of the king. And remember, his, his throne in Psalm 2 is on Zion. Zion's on earth. It's not, that's not in heaven, that's here. So this whole thing, meaning the whole Psalms, the whole Bible, is about earth. It's about mankind. Israel is surrounded by Nations that wanted them, and there's been a nation not too long ago that said Israel, and many have also voiced this in the Middle East, that Israel should be wiped off the map. Um, so if I could take a second here and get myself a pen. Of course, my... There it is. So all around, you know, Israel's in here. And you have to the north, Lebanon, over here, Aram, those are the Syrians. Uh, farther off are the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they're not on this map. 
You have Ammon over here, which great wars with them. Moab over here, great wars with them. Edom over here, great wars with them. Uh, Philistia, the Philistines, oh yeah, that's where Samson is from. Samson is from Gath, I think, right there. And uh, the Egyptians down in the south, which they had great problems with. All right. You say to God, promised land? Couldn't you put us in like an island? (laughs) Why isn't that the promised land? No, I'm going to put you right in the thick of your enemies. But look, in the human history, aren't we? That's why, you know, the, the idea of monasticism, of, you know, people running off into the wilderness and, and being alone and separate from the world, I, I can understand the desire to do that, but it's just totally wrong. We're in the world to be witnesses of the Lord to the world. We're the city set on a hill. We're the lamp, of the, we're the light of the world. And we need to be in the midst of it. So, in Psalm 2, we have three stanzas. Let's look at them. Another, well, uh, sorry, four stanzas, well-crafted psalm. Psalm 2, now, after we have just looked at the righteous and the wicked, and Psalm 1 ended with the wicked, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So in the first stanza we have, as you see here on the board, is the plan of the nations to rebel against God. We don't need him. And so it's, it's kind of like it has this idea of a meeting in which they're planning to rebel against God. What's wonderful about this is that the writer puts it in the present tense, meaning that while they're planning, the Lord is laughing. They're both in the same, once, this isn't put, not here, in Psalm 2, it's not in the past tense. It's put in the present. The nations are in an uproar. They are devising a vain thing. Now, it's cool about this, and we'll look at it a little bit more this week. The word devising in verse 1, it says the people devising. That's this exact same Hebrew word that's used for meditation in, verse, in, chapter, uh, in Psalm 1. I wish my brain would work this morning. The peoples are meditating a vain thing. They're planning. But what is the righteous one doing? Same word. What is the righteous one doing in Psalm 1? He's meditating on the word of God. While the ungodly are planning revolt. Now, are the ungodly, the ungodly are always planning revolt. Because they're always seeking for fulfillment and happiness apart from God. Even the people who are very nice. You know, there's the wicked. That's why it, uh, the, the wicked are really the ungodly in this, in this psalm. But they, they're always finding a way or trying to find a way to be fulfilled, to be happy, to be whole, to be truly human apart from their Creator. But in this case, in Psalm 2, it's about rulers. It's about, but when anybody reads it, it's about them. <clears throat> so, uh, second stanza. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. And he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. 
And it, what does he say? But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So in two is the response of the father or the Lord to their ridiculous plan. Now, when it says he laughs, does it mean that God is uncaring or unloving? No, God so loved the world. We're looking at the persona of an eastern monarch. Right? At the time, if you were going to attack, say, Israel, and if the king of Israel laughed at you, he's basically saying, yeah, big woof, woof, whatever it is. Uh, you know, I, I'm not afraid. Bring it. You know, that's what this means. It doesn't mean that God is uncaring. It just means that he is unafraid. He continues, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Notice it's a decree. What is a decree? Before the foundation of the world. I have begotten thee. That's why we know that it is of no uh, Davidic king outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The the last part there, you'll break them with a rod of iron, quoted in Revelation chapter 2. And you are my son, today I have begotten you, also quoted in the New Testament. And it shows here that this psalm, these verses are about the Lord Jesus Christ without a doubt. And so the third one is the king's claim to the throne. Who is going to stop him? Nobody. Who's going to stop us if we rely upon him? Nobody. This is what, this is what God is... Before we go reading about the victory of the Lord and the victory of us in the other Psalms, that God wants us to make sure that this is set in our souls. Who is there to fear? Who is going to stop me from being or, or, or being a blessing or, or having pleasure, the Lord's pleasure, from pleasing Him? Who's going to stop me from prospering in everything I do? A thousand, a million enemies against me. No. No. They arrayed against our Lord in the same way. They could not stop Him from what He was to do. It's beautiful. It's like this is handed to us on a silver platter. And once these two psalms are set in our mind, and we'll spend our lifetime continuing to grow in our understanding of them, the rest of the psalms become fruitful. Rather than just words, they become, you know, you can link them all back to these two psalms. Everything in the rest of the 148 can all be linked here, and we find out that the whole of Scripture is linked here. Right? This is the redemption of mankind, the decree to set the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne of Zion. That's the fulfillment of all the covenants to Abraham. It's really the fulfillment of all things. And the first part of it is the very first line of the Psalms is, Blessed is you. If you don't walk in the way of the wicked. And blessed means God is blessed. Your life will be blessed.
So the theology of Psalm 2. Oh, we didn't read the last stanza. I'm, a, I'm in a rush. I keep look, I'm looking at the clock. And I, I just had to tell myself to slow down. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. So this last one is the advice to the fools. Therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun. Now, see that phrase, do homage? It's like bend the knee. It's really what it means, but literally this Hebrew word means to kiss. Kiss the sun. I say, well, come on, man, we're, he's, a, he's a guy, I'm a guy, we're both dudes, I'm not going to kiss him. What they mean here is like you kiss the king, you kiss the ring. So do homage, that's why it means both. It means you bow before the Lord and you kiss him, not out of fear, but out of reverence. Do homage to the sun, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Which takes us back to the first line of Psalm 1. How blessed. So I don't walk in the way of the wicked. I take refuge in my Lord. And they're going to scoff. They're going to say, you're going to die. It's no good. You're going to lose out. Your flesh is going to say, no, don't do this. It's the wrong path. Don't you love me, flesh? The flesh says, don't you love me? And if you're like me, I say, well, yeah. (laughs) Sadly, I love you too much. But you must go. You must die. So let's look at, uh, go to Matthew 10. I knew I had way too much. Jesus teaches his disciples now to handle their ministries in light of this very truth of Psalms 1 and 2. I will never read this chapter without thinking, and I can't remember the name of the church, sadly. I will have to re-ask, but uh, Chris's cousin Rachel is married to awesome Christian girl. They live out in Idaho. We visited them in our, our trip this summer. And her husband, Steve, is an active member in uh, a particular church. They just bought a brand new building. Uh, they do awesome work there in Boise, Idaho. It's a doctrinal church. And uh, they have a meeting every week in which uh, the pastor and all the other, like the youth pastors and all the deacons and stuff, whoever involved in the board, of which Steve, Rachel's husband is, and he invited me to be a part of this board meeting when we were out there on vacation. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. So we sit around a table, we, take, we read through, and the, the, the reading that day was Matthew 10. And I can't, I can't read this passage without thinking of them all. Their pastor's name was Dusty. That, that was a name that was easy to remember. I wish I had. That's a great name. Right? Pastor Dusty. Yeah. (laughs) So look at verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. 
But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. The rulers of the earth scoff. But when they deliver you up, do not become anxious as to how or what you will speak, for it shall be given to you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And brother will deliver brother to death and and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. That's not eternal salvation. That's deliverance will be delivered from the persecution. In other words, he said, don't quit on it. Don't give in. The pressure gets really heavy. You are not allowed to become the dead fish that flows with the current. But in whatever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. I love that line because they're still going through the cities of Israel and the world. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he has become as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Again, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. They will not win. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And what is he telling us here? Don't keep your mouth shut about the gospel. Don't be like, you know, know, they're not going to like this if I bring this up. They're not going to like this if I speak the truth or the gospel. They're They're going to make fun of me or whatever. The Lord says here, look, you are the light of the world. Do this. I've called you to this. All of us are called to be witnesses. Don't fear them. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So why does he throw this in here? I know all about it. right? I, everything that you do on my behalf, will be blessed by me and my Father. Don't fear anything. But if you don't, and he's going to say here, if, you, if you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. That's how, he puts it, how Luke puts it. That uh, you know, he's he warning us to take full advantage in this conflict world. Right? You say to Jesus, the disciples are probably wondering, well, Jesus, you're you know, the Lord and King. Why don't you just put an end to all our enemies? You know, why are you leaving us in the midst of this? First off, why are you leaving us anyway? You're leaving us alone here on earth to go sit in heaven, and yet here we are surrounded by those who, who want to do all this to us. And you're telling us to not fear them even though they can kill our bodies. And Jesus has allowed us, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, has allowed us to be in the midst of, of an eternal, it's not eternal, you know, with the fall of Satan, the fall of man, in a conflict. 
an invisible war. He's allowed us to be in it so that our relationship with him through faith will be very real. Right? If, if you're going to actually live this life, like the disciples are called to, like we're all called to, and that's what, you know, that's, I thought about this the other day. I, the only thing I want to do with my ministry is teach people how to live this life and live it myself. That's all I want. And, you know, if we're going to do it, we've got to do it. It can't be about building church, building church and getting people or, you know, whatever. It can't be about money. It can't be about anything else other than us living the way that we are called to live. With full knowing that we're all sinners, sheeples, who fall on our dumb faces a lot. <laughs> who All of us have addictions in certain areas, and all of us have flaws. All of us have a sin nature, and fully acknowledging that. A church full of sinners. You don't have to pretend. We all know. But we, they're a bunch of sinners too. They don't even understand what's going on when he tells them to do this. He said, you're going to go through all the cities of Israel, towns of Israel, before I come back. And then, and then, after they have not gone through really hardly any, at the resurrection of Christ, they're, they're like, are you bringing in your kingdom now? And he says, no. No. <laughs> You've got a way to go. In other words, he has left us here. There's many reasons, but one of the reasons that stands out to me is that to live this life with this sin nature in this world and all the people who have absolutely agreed that Christianity is wrong and this life is wrong and it's perverse, that if we're going to truly live it, we have to truly have, you know, I say truly, I mean we have to have faith in the reality of it all and be completely committed to it. Those two things that I just said are the same thing. To have faith in it all and to be completely committed would be the same. If you say, I have faith in it all, but yeah, you know, I'm not all that committed to it, then you don't have faith in it all. And I would say, pray to God about that. Use prayer for that. Uh, in his word, of course. All right. Uh, we'll can, I'm out of time, so we'll continue with this. Um, so what we'll see is in Matthew 10, the Lord is going to give them instruction on how to live out in this conflict and, and not just survive. Right? He's teaching them how to thrive in their ministries, which is to thrive in their Christian lives. And then we're going to see somebody do it, actually do it in the book of Acts. Who, somebody who's going to take these words and apply them beautifully uh, just just what Jesus says here. You're going to be dragged before kings and all of that. We're going to see somebody who is and who actually applies this magnificently. And he's one of the apostles. Which one? The one we all love. Good old Peter. Peter, who was a scared little kid, becomes this in Acts chapter 4. It's magnificent. And he quotes, when Peter does it, 
He quotes from Psalm 2. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your opportunity to pray. Thank you for the psalms, for these two psalms that we looked at today, for laying out before us what the true issue is in human life and in human history. I mean, it's really summarized in those two little psalms. May we take them into our hearts, Father, and, and uh, have our, put our faith in them so that the rest of your word becomes what it should be, implanted in our hearts the truth, the word of God, the truth that is alive and powerful, that discerns between down to soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerns our thoughts and our intentions. So we thank you, Father, for your word, for your spirit, for your son. We ask in Christ's name, amen. All right, we'll take our offering at this time and let you go. Hmm. <laughs> oh, is that? That was from last week, right? Yeah, you remember I told you the story about that, um, that, who was that guy's name? They used to call him Bing. Bingham. His name is Bingham. He wrote a book on prayer. And uh, he had a ministry. He was a part of a ministry that showed movies. And they'd go, I think it was all over the world, where they'd show movies about Christ, and he would give a gospel message. And his five-year-old son said, I, you know, summarized the ministry as, all right, we're going to show you a movie about Jesus, but before we do, give us all your loose money, I think is the way that he put it. And then he said, do we have it all? And he said, okay, show the movie. So, I was kidding. We don't care about money here, just, as long as we have enough, <laughs> which we, we just need enough to pay the bills, that's all. Uh, let's pray for our offering. Thank you, Father, for the ability to give, the opportunity to give. And to give rightly with a motivation and a heart that is cheerful and just loves to give to you, to your ministries, and to your word. May we, may we, Father, be wise and use the finances that you give us for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Y'all love that song, don't you? Uh, all right. I'll be praying for you all week. Umbrellas don't work. Just so you know, they're going to work. Prayers are going to work for you. So, just so you know. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for our gathering and for this ministry and for our family that you have blessed us with. How blessed is the man who has unity a man and woman who have unity in their family. Uh, we uh, close our service, Father, with a call out to anyone who has not come to believe upon Jesus Christ as our Savior. If you haven't believed upon him, I beg you to please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. He is the Son of God, has become a man, and has been foretold of him for thousands of years. 
that he took upon himself the sins of the whole world while he hung on the cross at Jerusalem. And 2,000 years ago, he died for your sins as he died for mine. And therefore, this gift of salvation is given to you, but you have to accept it. It's not of works. It's just it's the same as you holding out your hand to accept a gift. But in this case, to hold out your hand is to believe upon Christ as your Savior. That's what he said. That's what the Scripture says. God says to believe upon him and you will be saved. Thank you, Father, and thank you for all you do. In Christ's name, amen.